Welcome to Building the Bridge, connecting parents and educators around online learning. I'm your host, Dr. Wendy Oliver, Chief Learning Officer for Edison Learning. Each week, this podcast will present targeted, practical strategies for both teachers and parents to ensure we are all on the same page in successfully navigating the digital education world together. Thanks for joining me on this journey. And now, please enjoy today's episode. Thanks for joining us today. This is part two of our two-part episode about trauma-informed strategies and my interview with Dr. Katherine Kennedy. In our last episode, we left off at the point where Katherine shared her own personal experience with trauma. Today, we discuss how we, as parents and educators, can support our children and students as we begin a new school year. Katherine, thank you for sharing your personal story with us. It's interesting to see how your brain as a researcher processed everything you went through and how you started pulling it apart scientifically. That is so fascinating to me, but that brings you to where you're at today and you're able to help so many other people because of that. And I think that also that analytical part of your brain is also what helps you to be able to speak about this in such a way that it's so passionate and and you're able to be comfortable in sharing what happened. And, and that, that is remarkable. That shows how far you've come with it. And I'm wondering, how can we create an environment for kids to be comfortable sharing their trauma? And as we come out of the pandemic or continue in the pandemic, we're going to see more of this. So what do you recommend that we do to help children be more comfortable? I think that's a really, really important question. And I think One thing to say is that, especially for the educators, I don't, and parents, I don't think that you have to have all of this training background in emotional well being and social well being and mental health and well being. Like, you don't have to have a lot of information to be able to be there for the students. I think the main thing is allowing them space to come to you when they're ready to process, because I think every person, um, including students, are going to process things in different ways, and they're going to be ready to share at different times. So it might not be that you don't want to question them all the time about, you know, how are you feeling, you know, that type of thing, where it's like this constant questioning and barragement. But I think of it as like, if you see a behavior that you're thinking, huh, that's an interesting behavior that the child is exhibiting. I think that oftentimes we go to like the behavior management side of things and like really trying to figure out like, okay, uh, you know, um, sometimes we don't go to that place of like trying to figure out like where the child is coming from. Like why would that child react in that certain way? And it could be um, as we're seeing in research is that the underlying condition could be that it is a stress response or it is a trauma response. And so instead of going to that punishment space where, you know, when I'm sure like when you and I went to school, that that's what we thought about as behavioral management for schools. But I think a lot more we're thinking more of in the restorative sense of it, restorative practices. And so allowing the child to have some space first to process what, their ha- what's happening and then um, you know providing them a, a relationship with you 
And I think that that's why I, I uh, said that in the beginning is just like relationships are so very important, especially if we are going to be continuing in an online space. I know that um, the AP is pushing to go back physically to schools in some way. But even if we do that, or if we do that at home um, through the computer, I think the relationship piece is going to be so important. And having one-on-one conversations with students, just checking in and being human uh, is going to be essential. Um, One of the things that I did uh, over the last year was a, a California guide for distance or digital learning. And one of the meetings that we had was with the Californians for Justice. And in one of the conversations that the student was having with us, they they were juniors, seniors, and I think there were a couple of sophomores. So one of the sophomores said, I just want my teachers to be human beings. And that was really eye-opening for me to hear that and to think that good grief, like the, like they were thinking that their teachers were robots because again, they were going to that place of content delivery rather than relationship building. And I, and I feel like that that's telling because that student, that same student at home was helping his elementary aged uh, sister with online learning. And he was a caretaker for his grandfather who had Alzheimer's his parents were uh, frontline workers. So like he didn't have any other support at home. And he was like, if I could just have a flexibility of having space as well as just making sure that I'm talking to a human being and that I'm treated like a human being. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, (laughs) like going back to like that idea of learning loss and learning gaps. And we just keep on pushing all of this pressure onto our teachers, our students and our parents. And I feel like we're coming at it from the wrong space in that regard. I feel like we're, we're again, going into that negative space and I'd rather us be in the, we have done the best that we can. And now moving forward, we're just going to treat each other like human beings and we're going to take care of ourselves with these short strategies of breathing and meditation, whatever works for you, whether it's art therapy, whatnot. And we're going to come out of this on the other side without having a lot of major issues. I feel like that is my hope. But again, like I'm not <laughs> policymakers or anything like that. But I do hope that that we can give students the space that they need in order to process what they need to process and to reflect on what they need and to ask for what they need to be advocates for what they need as well. And if they can't be advocates, that we as adults, educators can act as their advocates until they can learn how to be their own advocates. When you talk about the example of the student who, you know, he was advocating for the ch- other children in his family and he was devoted to supporting them and, and asking for a relationship with an adult. When we talk about trauma and, and all this attention on SEL and all this attention on trauma during the pandemic, what types of trauma are you seeing? Is that what you're seeing you know, we, we've also heard that there's trauma where children don't have food because they can't get meals at school. What types of trauma are really happening 
you know, out there in the world, so to speak, that's not behind the computer, that, that children are really having to deal with that we're going to see as educators when we're back in person full time. So I think that the traumas that we're seeing as students come back can really be aligned to those that are typically seen in adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And so those can include the child having unfortunately had um, abuse done to them or done to some of their family members, or it can also be um, an accident or uh, it can be a parent's loss of job or parents getting divorced. Um, Any of these types of traumas um, can be those that are represented for students. Um, It can also be, like you mentioned, uh, the idea of um, students not having uh, food or places to live, like if their parents lost their house um, or, um, you know, they needed to live with other people that they weren't familiar with. Maybe they're at a homeless shelter. Maybe they've become homeless and they've never been homeless before. Or perhaps they had to go into foster care because their parents unfortunately passed away or one of their parents passed away um, because of COVID or maybe it's a COVID loss. You know, all of these different pieces, I think there's so many different variables that can be considered traumatizing to a student. And when I mentioned the window of tolerance, when we think about trauma, trauma doesn't have to be huge things. It can be something very small and And not to say that there's big traumas, little traumas for everybody, but it's more of like a continuum where depending upon my window of tolerance, I might not be able to handle a traumatic event as well as you can. And so, and it's not a comparison thing, but it's more of just, that's the illustration of that continuum. It's like everybody is going to deal with a traumatic event differently than another person. And so when we when we have children coming back to school in the fall, when we are interacting with them, um, just really giving them the space, if they, you know, if they react to something, giving them the space to process what is happening and to create a relationship in such a way that they feel comfortable coming to you and really sharing what they're experiencing. Because a lot of times when we think about behavior, we often go to that side of, oh, they're acting up. Then we go to the punishment space. And right now in research, we're seeing that it's more about restorative practices and really trying to get at the underlying cause of what that behavior is. And we're finding that a lot of times it's because of a trauma trigger or a stress, a prolonged stress trigger. And we really try to get at that root cause of what's happening and be able to support the student in whatever way that they're not getting. And that is making them react in that way. You're listening to Building the Bridge presented by Edison Learning. Stay tuned for more online learning tips and strategies. From the perspective of a parent, advising a student that maybe has a friend who has gone through something traumatic. Same question for a teacher that knows that he or she has students that have gone through something traumatic. And then even for a school that knows that they need to create some dialogue and some communication with families. 
how would you recommend through those three different lenses that they advise or that they communicate or strategies that they might use as far as dealing with a student that's been through trauma? It's a great question. And I think it comes down to very simple techniques. Um, like I mentioned before, I don't really feel like anybody has to go out and get a degree in psychology or um, yoga training or anything like that. I think it's really about coming back to um, your center and feeling grounded. Uh, oftentimes with a trauma or stress response, we want to escape our bodies and we go to that disassociation. That's what that escape from your body is. It's called disassociation. So you disassociate with yourself and it's almost like a third party kind of looking down at what's happening instead of actually being within your body. And so one of the things that I would mention is that you can just work with the five senses um, with that student and or child and just ask them to identify five things that they see, five things that they hear, five things that they smell, five things that they taste, and five things that they feel, and really bringing themselves back into the body. Because again, I think when we think about trauma responses, it's always like we want to be anywhere but here. <laughs> and so grounding ourselves in the present moment and having things around them that maybe it's grass, or maybe they go outside and they're in nature or something, or they have a favorite blanket or a favorite toy or something around them that they can then interact with that's physically in their space. The other thing is coming back to the breath as well. That's a lot of internal work, especially long, slow, deep breaths. And so really getting the child to concentrate on the breath, coming into the body, coming out of the body. And then also if they would like to kind of doing a guided meditation, oftentimes kids like stories. And so there's a lot of guided meditations that students can do. Parents and educators can kind of walk the students through it. And during those guided meditations, sometimes what can happen, um, scientifically speaking, is you can get into those theta waves, which are the waves in which we can actually start to heal internally. And so uh, oftentimes it's like that space where you're <laughs> into your deep sleep. And those are the places where we can really do a lot of healing processes. And, and they don't have to be long processes either to help to ground students or, or children. We typically do practices for three to five minutes at a time. And those are enough to really get people to connect back in with themselves and to, to connect back in student-wise with themselves as well. Thank you again for being part of the show. And thank you so much for what you're doing for educators and students. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, I truly appreciate you being part of Building the Bridge. If you're one of our listeners on Apple, we'll hope you'll consider giving a five-star review to help other educators and parents learn about the show. And no matter where you listen, we hope you'll stay tuned for more great episodes about timely topics. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building the Bridge. I hope today's insights and strategies will prove valuable as you support great online learning this week. Be sure to visit edisonlearning.com for many more resources to support high quality 21st century learning 
including a comprehensive suite of more than 150 online courses for grades 6 through 12 and much, much more. Join me again next week for more tips to connect parents and educators around best practices for online learning.